Say this with me if you know it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now I butchered it in first service, but I think my father-in-law has a more fun rendition of this. Now I lay me in my bed, a bag of candy at my head. If I should die before I wake, just know I died with a bellyache. <laughs> Did I get it right? That's a common bedtime prayer for kids. But as I've thought about it over the years, I've wondered the, the wisdom of introducing the thought of nighttime death to a child. You know, that's not exactly helpful for little kids to think about. As I did this, maybe even in my childhood, I began to wonder if I need to ask God to take my soul every night. Did he forget last night that I asked him once already? Is there a question mark whether or not he will take me if I don't ask him, if I don't pray this prayer? Is there, there's kids just come up with all kinds of stuff. But then, as I pondered on this further and talking about heaven and hell and today the nature of the soul, what the Bible speaks about soul and spirit and body, I began to think that that little prayer introduces a bit of theology that perhaps we hadn't thought through. I wondered about the soul. We have soul language, don't we? I mean, if anybody a fan of soul food? I mean, that's deep south. That's New Orleans, right? I don't know much about it, but there's soul music. And if you have a soul sister, that's just one of those deeply felt emotional, really bonding things that you have with, with somebody and music that really touches your soul. I mean, that's the way we, that's what we talk about it as far as deeply felt emotional things. And then there's that guy that sold his soul to the devil to get a fiddle that he could play in. I don't know what that song, I don't know, I, I forgot about that song. But you just, there's that idea that you can sell your soul or your eternity to, to the devil or make a bargain, in other words. And it's a commonly, commonly held notion, and maybe even in jokes, that when your body stops functioning, that your soul or your spirit or whichever goes to uh, heaven, passes some entrance test at a gate, banned by St. Peter or some such person, and then you float around with wings and a halo forever on a cloud. Right? No. <laughs> Not even close uh, to being the biblical picture of life after death. And I've messed with your minds a little bit here and there about this, and I'm about to do it again. I have a message where I'm going to deal with resurrection, uh, where I'll spend more time talking about what the Bible says about what happens to Christians when our body stops functioning? Notice I'm saying that instead of dying. I mean, that's, I think we need to be specific about what we're talking about. Until then, I'll probably just dance around the subject and talk about other important parts of this. But I really think that much of what turns people off of Christianity isn't necessarily what Jesus said. There's big fans of outside of religious circles about what Jesus said. It may not even be what the Bible says, although there's critics about that. But I think what turns some people off of Christianity is the common misconceptions and outright mythology that happens when we misunderstand and totally misconstrue what the Bible says, what God said about things like heaven or hell 
or eternity. And I think this is one of these subjects where we get a little confused and clouded. I've often said that if you tell somebody more often who they are, you might not have to tell them what to do so often. If you remind someone about their identity, I'm reminded of a devotion that Chris King gave at a men's breakfast where he was often told, do it like a king did it. You're reminded who you are, and that comes with a reputation. That comes with a standard. So you do it like you cared. If you have a standard in your workplace or if you're a military, that reflects your work and your person reflect the greater group. As a Christian, as one who follows in the footsteps of Jesus, if you're told more often who you are, you might not have to be told so often what you ought to be doing because your identity in Christ, what all that brings to you, how you even understand that lifts your eyes to something greater than, well, you just need to be good. It's more than just behavior modification or a system to control people's behavior and rules and regulations. It's so much more than that. I let the power of the Holy Spirit transform my mind and my life into more the likeness of Jesus. That sounds so much more effective and desirable than just be good. Follow the rules. Stay in line. Christianity as behavior modification depends on my efforts and my willpower, and you all know how good that goes well, more often than not. But finding my identity in Christ and being made more like Jesus by the power of the Spirit helps me do things and be somebody I can't even manufacture on my own. So I've come to the conclusion that it's helpful to tell believers who they are in Christ, but it's also very important to tell ourselves and remind ourselves what we are, how we were made, how the Bible describes us. And you and I are created by God with value and purpose. And I don't want to neglect what God created. It. If God made you and God made me and gave us purpose and value, I think that alone motivates us to do things and participate in things that are going to be helpful, not hurtful for ourselves and other people. And I think to understand our eternity, not just destination here, but understand our nature, our very being, we have to return again to Genesis. Here are the origins of soul and spirit, words used in the Bible. I want to focus on three Hebrew words found in the Old Testament. The first is ruach. Everyone say ruach. You have to get that guttural at the end like you're going to spit, okay? This is the word for spirit, for breath, for wind. Take your hand and put it against your mouth and go, hi. Feel that? What's that? It's your breath. You made a word. You communicated something, and there was an idea put out there. There was a reality that you, your breath, your words created into being. We're made in the image of God. When you speak, breath exits your body, and things manifest itself. That's ruach. There are other words, nefesh. Everyone say nefesh. This is a very, we'll get into what nefesh is, but life, soul, person. And then there is this word neshama, which is breath. 
The first instance of spirit in the Bible, the second verse of the first chapter, Genesis 1, verse 2. The Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, hovering, moving over the surface of the deep. And God spoke light. God spoke and there was atmosphere and dry land and oceans. He spoke and there were plants and trees. He spoke and there were billions of galaxies with stars and planets. He spoke and he filled the seas with fish and the air with birds. He formed from the ground every beast of the field, every creature that moves along the ground. And in chapter 2, verse 7, after God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, which is what Adam means, earth, God breathed the breath of life into him. And man became, depending on what version of the Bible you're holding right now, a living creature. Man became a living being. And if you've got the old King Jimmy in your hands, you will see that it says, man became a living soul. The word is nephesh. And as one Bible scholar put it, we are dirt and divine breath. Now, let's contrast the Bible's use of this nephesh word with the way our culture commonly understands the concept of soul. In the Old Testament, nephesh occurs over 750 times. That's a lot for a Bible word. There aren't very many that happen that often. But in the NIV and other modern translations, it's only translated soul about 100 times. That leaves a lot of nephishes out there that aren't soul. What else is there? Well, most of the time it's translated life or lives or alive. And then there's this combination of a bunch of different pronouns. I, me, you, yourselves, ourselves, nephishes all over the place. Okay? And then this word is also translated into words like heart, creature, or throat. You think about life, something happens to your throat, your life's over, right? I owe Tim Mackey, another Bible teacher, for these references. Numbers 11.6, it says that our strength is dried up. Our nephesh is dried up. Psalm 105.18, the psalmist is talking about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it says that Joseph's neck, his nephesh, was put in chains. Genesis 46, verse 15, if you're, again, if you're holding a King James, it says that 33 souls were in Jacob's family. And does that mean he had 33 ghost-like apparitions in his house? No, he had 33 people in his family, sons and daughters, and other such family members. In Numbers 31, 19, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer. Deuteronomy 24, a kidnapper called a nephesh thief. Psalm 119, in the second to the last verse of that big old psalm, the NIV says, let me live that I may praise you. But the actual Hebrew is, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. And Psalm 42 may be a more familiar passage. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my nephesh pants for you. My nephesh, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's that combination of, I'm really thirsty in my throat right now, and I really want to drink right now, and I just like that, I thirst for God. My body desires just being with God. 
So let's process this for a second. The word translated soul in Scripture doesn't at all resemble the idea of some disembodied ghost-like presence within a body. The Old Testament authors treated this word as a whole person. Your entire being that was dependent on the breath, the spirit of the creator God. And here's some examples of this. In Genesis 6 and 7, the account of the flood, it says the breath of life, everything that had the breath of the Ruach of God died. Breath and spirit given from God, withdrawn, everyone's dead. The book of Job has a lot of these references in them. Job 27, Job says, As long as the breath, the neshama, and the ruach of God are in my nose, (laughs) ever think about God, the breath of God, the spirit of God being up your nose? It's not irreverent. It's what the Bible says. Job took quite literally the CPR that God did on the clay that was Adam that gave him life. Job 33.4, Job's companion Elihu says, the spirit, the ruach of God has made me. The neshama, the breath of Almighty, gives me life. And Job 34, verse 15. If God should gather to himself his ruach and his neshama, if God gathered his spirit and his breath, all living things would die. It's almost like the Bible has an idea that God gave breath, which gives life, And if God takes that breath and that spirit away, there's death. So the breath of life, God's life-giving, animating energy, the ruach is something that is given to a person to make him or her a living nefesh. God's spirit is likened to breath, to wind. And Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wants and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, made alive by the breath of God. In that verse, wind and Spirit are the same Greek word, pneuma. When you hear pneuma, you might hear pneumonia, you might hear pneumatic, you might hear something dealing with air, wind, And these ideas and words are developed in the New Testament. Paul uses spirit and soul, pneuma and suke, to mean not individual parts of you, but facets of that same person. Sometimes the word spirit is used of God. The spirit of Jesus is mentioned. The spirit of a person. It's not a ghost. It's just a part of his or her life. William Hendrickson, in his commentary in 1 Thessalonians, says this, The distinction made in the New Testament between soul and spirit amounts to this. Pneuma, spirit, is largely defined as mental activity, whereas suke, or soul, is used for emotional activity. It's the spirit which perceives, plans, and knows. It's the soul that is sorrowful. The spirit prays, the soul loves. The soul is used of a broader, more generic term, using the life, breath, and eternal nature of a whole person. While the spirits use more in relationship to God, whether in worship or prayer or witnessing or serving. And in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it talks about the word of God being living and active like a sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing, what? 
soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Word of God works to uncover your motives. It gets down deep into your inner parts where your emotion and your intellect will sometimes be in conflict, and that Word will split in between those two and lay it open and help it make sense. It boils down to, I think, this phrase, you don't have a soul, you are one. Which is way different than what you may have seen on the internet somewhere. That someone said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. It's different. And here's why. The idea that you are a soul, you have a body, is, this, is just a different side of the spectrum as you're a body, you have a soul. It implies that this ethereal ghost-like presence inside your body is actually your true self, and it's treating your physical body like a host, like some parasite waiting for, to mature and then get rid of the flesh that it depended on for its home. It's actually heresy. Christians fought against this in the first century. Very much Greek-influenced thought that's also influenced how we think about our very nature, how God created male and female. The phrase, body and soul, just implies this distinction that they're separate parts of you, which they're not. I know uh, what you've been thinking because I've wondered the same thing. There has to be some part of me that when my heart stops beating and my breath leaves and my body stops functioning, something else exists. I still exist. After breath leaves my body, something is still there. What is it? How is it? Where does it go? What I'm learning is that this non-physical spirit state that we enter into upon the death of a body, the biblical authors would not have considered this the norm or the ideal. But we'll get to that later when I talk about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, it's a long one. There is life after death. But the Bible is way more interested and spends way more time talking about what N.T. Wright calls life after, life after death. I wrestled with how to finish this up. What do we do with this understanding? What do I do with some of you who are really irritated with me right now? I don't know. Does this mess with your imagination as to when things are made new again. Does this think about who you are? Does it make you think about how we're made, what eternity in new creation looks like when God's space and our space become one space once again? Let's take a look at Romans 8 because I think this is important. Romans 8 verse 19 talks about creation. Again, Romans 8, 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now there's debate about sons of God, but just understand, creation waits. It's expecting something. The creation was subjected to frustration. So, okay, so the creation is waiting. It's eagerly expecting something. It is frustrated In hope, verse 21, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
Verse 22. Now we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Creation doesn't seem to be happy, does it? It's frustrated. It wants to be liberated from its bondage to decay. It's been groaning. Verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters. The redemption, look at, see that? The redemption of our bodies. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Look, sin came into the world back in Genesis 2. Death has been the norm ever since. Scripture tells the story about how God is bringing new life, new life to people who are bound by sin and death and decay. Hope that one day death and corruption will be done away with. All will be made new, all restored, all be made right again. As it was once, so it will be again. Eden made right. Our bodies healed, whole, full access again to the tree of life that produces fruit every month. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Go and compare Ezekiel 47 to Revelation 22. I don't know that this is all a way figurative, but wouldn't you like to run and not grow weary? Wouldn't you like to walk and not grow faint? Could we dare think that this might be the case where we could soar on wings like eagles, as Isaiah 40 talks about? Is that completely figurative? I don't know. What if you could grow a garden and not have to pull weeds? What if your mind could be so clear and sharp you wouldn't need coffee? Coffee would just be, you know, it's for its own pleasure. <laughs> and you could read and learn and retain everything. What if you never felt stiff or sore or any other bodily pain ever again? No more of that poking, right? That nerve right there in your muscles that your neck, when you turn, you go, ow, that really hurts. No more migraines, no more chemo, no more fear of death or illness. What if you could gather around a table full of people who used to be on your bad side or maybe you were on theirs and you could share a meal in peace and harmony and love? What if you could walk up to a lion and scratch its chin and bury your face in its mane and give it a big hug and take a walk through the woods? What if, what if, is your imagination firing a little more about new creation, new resurrection? If the resurrected Jesus is any hint of what new creation bodies will be like, it won't just be some ghost-like floating around on clouds. He had a body. He ate fish with his disciples. But he could walk through locked doors and appear to them and disappear at will. That's kind of cool. I don't know you can walk through a wall in your resurrected body, but that'd be kind of awesome. Maybe that trick was just for him. I don't know. But I can't help but think if Paul calls him the firstborn from the dead, the Christ's resurrection body is a clue about what this actually might be like for us. And isn't it curious that he still bore scars? Not all of them, mind you. I mean, he was covered head to toe in scars, bloody mess when he was wrapped up in a tomb. He came out with just 
Very few. He said to Thomas in John 20, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. He said, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. See, I don't know all the details about what this is going to look like, but I do think we're given enough to understand a few things that our culture says is that we can come at this biblically and with a little more imagination and a little more hope about what new creation will be like. Let's place our faith in the one who created us, the one who died to redeem us, the one who is coming back and gathering us all to himself that we may be where he is and he makes his dwelling place with us and makes everything new and everything right and good again. Let's pray together. Father, help us to, uh, to see the world the way you made it and not just as, um, as our culture might dictate who we are or what it's going to be like. Help us to see things from your perspective. Give us um, a mind that understands and, and emotions that love deeply. And may we just be more and more like Jesus in what we do and say. Thank you for the living hope that is in Christ. That we can talk about these things all day long, but really it, it just comes down to what he's accomplished for us. But you have such an amazing picture of, of redemption and creation for us, awaiting for us in the future, this eternity business that we're trying to study. So help us to be um, in practice of what that means to be your people here. And we'll have a little glimpse of it, what it's going to be like there. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.